Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. It's been a while since we have last spoken, and I just want to say a big, big thank you to all of you for your patience. I have been missing making these episodes, if I'm being completely honest, and it's amazing to be back here again to make some more wonderful episodes for you all. So just to give some context as to why I've been missing for the past couple of weeks, I'm actually working on starting a new company. Yes, that's right. And that has been taking up a lot of my time, which means I have unfortunately had less time to dedicate to the podcast and the newsletter. But rest assured, uh, that will be changing pretty soon. I will be focused on trying to push out more episodes and newsletters because this is really, really fun. And honestly... I don't want to stop doing this <laughs> and I I know from speaking to some of you in person who listen to this podcast that a lot of people do get value out of this so rest assured I will be continuing making these episodes, pushing out more newsletters and keeping you in the loop on what's going on in the crazy world of DeFi. So yes, thank you guys for being so patient and you know sticking with us and enjoying these episodes. So I'm sure if you're keeping up with crypto Twitter and all of the craziness that happens there. You're seeing all these crazy new money games and innovations that are happening in DeFi that are happening at an exponential rate. You know, like it's incredible how fast things are moving right now. I, I've been looking at this stuff, so I've, I've been keeping tabs on it personally. I haven't spoken about this publicly, but, you know, over the next couple of episodes, maybe in the newsletter as well, um, I will be more public about my thoughts and opinions on all of these money games that are happening. So rest assured, you're going to hear some thoughts on that side as well. So that's everything for updates. Thank you so much for being so patient and waiting on these episodes. I'm so glad to actually finally be launching episodes again. So thank you guys for sticking with us and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. So today's episode is all about a conversation I had with Sam, who is from Chainalysis. And we'll explain all about the conversation and, and some of the interesting things we discuss later in the podcast. But before we start, I just want to say a big, big shout out to Ave, who is the sponsor of today's show. If you don't already know about Ave, Ave is a decentralized finance protocol. And more specifically, it's a non-custodial money market on Ethereum. So what that means is you can get assets like DAI, USDC, deposit them into Ave and earn interest on your capital. And when you do that, what you get is these things called A tokens. A tokens match the value of your investment into Aave. So say, for example, you put in 10 DAI, you get 10 A DAI from Aave. And these A DAI can be stored anywhere, the ERC20 tokens. And the cool thing about these A tokens is that they're programmed so that the interest accrues to them in real time. And so essentially, you have this permissionless global savings account where, to be honest, you don't even need to deposit into Aave to get this savings account via via getting a hold of this asset all you have to do is get a hold of this asset and essentially you have this asset that is pegged to the value of one us dollar you know in the case of if you if you're using dai usdc and you get this accruing interest to this token which is fantastic and you know it's not just a few random people using this protocol it has over a billion dollars locked up in it that's insane i was talking about a billion dollars locked up in the whole of DeFi in february and now to think that one protocol has a billion dollars locked up is incredible. So highly, highly recommend for you to go check out Aave. They are Aave.com. That is A-A-V-E.com. Big, big shout out to Aave. Thank you so much for sponsoring today's episode. And yeah, let's get into today's episode. 
welcome back to another episode of Abel's Abstracts, the podcast where we abstract away the complexity of building products for the next generation of the web and finance. My name is Abel Tedros, and I'll be your host today as we dive into today's episode. So today I'm very excited to bring on a guest, and that guest is Sam. Sam is currently a product manager at the leading blockchain analysis company, Chain Analysis, and is also an Entrepreneur First alumni and founded CodeReg, a product that automates compliance. So that's kind of my brief introduction of yourself, Sam. First and foremost, thank you for coming on the show and welcome to the show. And yeah, did I miss anything there? Uh, well, obviously my life history is a bit more interesting than that. But yeah, those, those, those are the main <laughs> pertinent uh, parts to, to this conversation, at least. It's good to be here. Awesome, wicked. Yeah, feel free to elaborate if you've got more background. I'd love for the audience to hear more about yourself. Sure. I was like talking about how I found out about Bitcoin because it was that was in itself was kind of an interesting story. Mm. So after I graduated, I avoided getting a real job and went to teach English in China and have some fun there. And while I was there, I visited some friends in Shenzhen, which is like electronics capital of the world where, you know, everything you probably use is built and um, met this guy who is South American and had set up this business building. I can't even remember what what it was. He had this real problem that all of the people he was working with back home, he couldn't send them any money because it's really hard to get money out of China. And so uh, I was at this, we're at this bar and there's all these, you know, young, interesting, beautiful people. And I ended up spending four hours talking with this nerd about this thing called Bitcoin, which is how he was uh, running his business and paying it. And this is back in 2013. So uh, it was kind of interesting that back then people were really using it for international payments. And kind of that started on a journey. So um, yeah, and I, I studied some cryptography. And so I've kind of always been interested in it. And then, uh, yeah, kind of got a, a real job after that while keeping an eye on, on the crypto stuff. And then basically was kind of looking at jumping in and basically got put off by all the bullshit. So uh, ended up <laughs> trying to, yeah, found a, a startup that was trying to bring a kind of compliance or, or kind of trust in the, I guess, non-scamminess or trying to get rid of the nonsense and the noise and, and help people who are building real useful things and actually trying to bring the useful stuff out of crypto. And then yeah, that's kind of how I ended up at, at Chainalysis. It kind of all ties together. That's a wonderful story. One thing I found to be interesting is that you obviously started CodeReg to, to try to essentially make it easier for companies to comply with regulations and stuff like this and make that process you know, automated and very easy. And obviously that was an interesting kind of journey and kind of that it's perfectly led up to also working at Chainalysis as well. So I guess for the audience who doesn't know what CodeReg is, could you please give us like a brief breakdown of like what it is and how it works and stuff like this? Sure. So yes, it's worth saying that I've left CodeReg now. My co-founder continued and went in a slightly different direction. So Core Insight was, was bridging these two things, which is like in the crypto space, they're going to be regulated and they need to comply with those regulations. And, you know, part of the whole smart contracts code is law. There's this possibility of putting financial regulations in smart contracts. And then you can do some really cool stuff like when the regulations change, you just change the smart contract and you're automatically compliant. You could basically just save a fortune because you don't need to change your whole systems every time. You can kind of have it baked in that, that kind of change. And then on the other side, on the, you know, the big banks, for them, again, we were like, well, you know, maybe you don't need to put it on a blockchain. You can still take the smart contract technology, this kind of packaging up of the regulations and plug that directly into the bank system. So when they basically want to check the rules, they check against our encoded rules and then we can change our encoded rules and their system can change as well. 
we were kind of the FCA, um, the financial regulator here in the UK was exploring this. And I think they're still heading this direction of this kind of smart compliance or automated compliance or encoded regulations. It's still kind of an area of research. So we were yeah, we built a tool that could basically encode these rules and then we would check against your data whether you're compliant or not. And then basically what we found was that the crypto companies, we were too early. The, the regulations weren't clear enough or enforced enough. For, for most of them, the main compliance they're worrying about is don't trade with North Korea. <laughs> is my data reporting for some financial regulation compliant? You know, that, that just wasn't applied yet. Whereas at the big banks, it's kind of like, well, they're not in crypto, so you know we can stay away from there, but be crypto ready, as we called it. But with the big banks, what we found was, you know, when you're a really small startup, selling to a massive bear moth is very difficult with their long sales cycle. So we build what we call a minimum viable product, but not a minimum sellable product. And so after trying to work out a way to kind of package this and sell this as a very small company, we actually in the end decided to go in a slightly different direction. So my co-founder continued and went in an NLP direction. So applying uh, machine learning to um, pass and make sense of the actual text of, of regulations. So, so that's the direction they've gone in. So still kind of regulations and code tying together, but kind of a slightly higher level or slightly earlier stage in the process. Yeah, it's interesting that that thought. And I guess I'd love to see how that kind of plays out because like you say, it's still an early kind of area of research and the ability to be able to encode regulation, I think a fascinating idea. And I hope that kind of plays out to be an interesting one. So I guess let's kind of, take the conversation into like how that led into joining Chainalysis because Chainalysis is very much aligned with, I guess, CodeReg in, in that at its core, it's trying to allow more interaction with the world of crypto and the existing financial world. So yeah, how did you land in Chainalysis? Yeah, it was kind of, it's a very strange niche to find yourself in, in the kind of <laughs> specialty in finance technology, particularly where its compliance meets crypto. You know, there aren't many people in that space. And so, yeah, so when I left Code Reg and I took a break and then I was looking for a role and I, I what became clear actually going through my own process of, of building a startup was that I'd been a coder, I'd been a developer before, but basically when you're kind of entirely in charge of your own time and what you do, you kind of realize you do more of what you like and that I actually enjoyed thinking and discussing more about the technology and tying together the business parts and the strategy parts with the technical part. And so product management made perfect sense. So I was looking for a product management role. I interviewed a whole bunch of different fintechs. But then I already knew about Chainalysis and I also knew Elliptic. I actually know some people who work there, which is a, a funny dynamic. And yeah, so it kind of seemed like an obvious step. And in fact, during the interview, my now manager was convinced I was pandering to him because I was looking for a scaling startup you know, post series B who ideally work in crypto compliance. So he thought I was making it up, but that, no, that was the niche I ended up in. And yeah, it's a very fascinating company to join. So kind of a bit of a no brainer. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting how things have lined up and how you've kind of ended up at Chainalysis. Yeah, I guess a wonderful story there. Definitely something that couldn't have been planned ahead of time. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Okay, cool. So I guess sticking with the Chainalysis story, Let's kind of set the scene and talk a bit about the problem that you guys are solving, right? So when it comes to banks, businesses, governments interacting with the world of crypto, they need to have a clear idea of what's going on in crypto to be able to play with it for many different reasons, for compliance reasons, et cetera, et cetera. So talk to us a bit about some of the challenges that currently exist and how Chainalysis is trying to solve those. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So Chainalysis is the blockchain analysis company. It's a highly original name. <laughs> and yeah, so the, the core idea was, you know, with blockchain, people will need analysis. And so we provide a whole range of that. But as it stands now, the kind of 
customers who need that most are kind of these institutional players, both crypto institutions as well as, well, I want to say the real world, but you, you know what I mean. The traditional <laughs> yeah. uh, institutions, shall we say. Yeah, so what we do is we have a series of products that are mainly focused on compliance and investigation. And so we have Reactor, which is an investigations product. So, you know, law enforcement or crypto companies, you've got an address, you've got a counterparty or a person you're trading with, and you can actually track like a, a much, much more complicated block explorer to understand where those funds came from. And we kind of provide this map of the activity and where the funds have flowed so you can trace where the funds flowed from, perform anti-money laundering, et cetera, or kind of like very forensic financial investigations. We also have KYT or Know Your Transaction, which is particularly for crypto companies, exchanges, et cetera. So what they can do is they actually, we have an API. So you send us all of your transfers, all of your counterparties. We can tell you and create alerts of if the funds that you're receiving or the person that you're interacting with has a kind of dodgy or illicit connections. So whether the funds are stolen or whether, you know, they've been spending that money, sending that money to terrorist organization, you know, everything with the full gamut or even just like, you know, it's a scam, right? The, one of your customers is, is sending their money to a scam and they're not aware it's a scam. So all the kinds of that. And then we also have Cryptos, which is all about profiles of crypto businesses. So this is actually understanding how a crypto businesses across all the chains, how they actually appear, what they do. And this is very useful if you're a crypto business trying to prove you're compliant, tying back to what we were looking at with CodeReg. So, you know, you go to your bank and you want to prove that you are doing the best you can. You have really good compliance processes in place. Cryptos can help with that. And now, so we've got these kind of three different products, but what Really with chain analysis, these all kind of sit on this one big data set because we are the blockchain analysis company. We basically take in all this blockchain data, all this real world data, and we tie it together in this one massive, super powerful data set. And then, yeah, we're just building uh, kind of products on top to add and look into that. And so we're building, you know, new products as it is. We've got this new product in the pipeline called Markets which is all about kind of the financial analysis of that data. So although we have very much a compliance investigative focus at the moment, the long term, there's kind of all sorts of different fascinating things you can build on top of that data and understand what's going on in crypto. Yeah, it's super interesting because as I was kind of like looking up on chain analysis and kind of thinking about the product suite that you guys have, the first thought that came to me is that this data is out there and it's kind of easily accessible. But I think the magic that you guys bring to the table is the fact that you're able to basically add other bits of data into that data that you get from like Bitcoin, Ethereum, when you just run nodes in those networks. And then also kind of the analysis on top of that to be able to have a very clear picture of what's going on in those chains. And so, yeah, I think that it's super gnarly, the challenges that you have to face when trying to do that. So we're obviously going to go deeper into that into later into the podcast. But yeah, I found it quite interesting that the real value that you guys bring and the real magic that you guys bring is the analysis on that data and the mixing of that with other data and then the analysis on top of that to have a clear picture, right? And then the last part is actually being able to present that data in a useful form. So one of the things we talk about is actionable insights. So we don't just give our you know customers information or data or analysis. We give them in a form that they therefore know what to do with it and they can actually help their business or actually perform something based on that data. It's, it's no good just kind of having something of interest. Of course, yeah. The ability to be able to kind of have that data and to be able to say, okay, this is the next step or it's like some sort of actionable component, I think is a very important one. So I'm really excited to get into this conversation because I think it's going to be a fascinating one. But before we do, I'd love to kind of ask this question around uh, privacy tech. So 
privacy tech is coming about. A lot of interesting stuff is happening on Ethereum around zero knowledge proofs. And so that's going to kind of change the dynamics of transactions on the chain. So I wonder, what does that look like for chain analysis? You know, I know that Ethereum is one of the chains that you guys analyze and kind of work with. So I guess sticking with this example, what does that look like? What does the future look like there? Sure. So it's worth saying that this kind of constant argument about privacy versus, you know, security or whatever. And there are certain people that like to paint chain analysis as this kind of evil anti-privacy company. So for us, kind of privacy, particularly individual privacy is incredibly important. And we make sure that we never attribute any individuals except when they've been specifically sanctioned or government very loudly declares them doing something pretty terrible. So it's worth saying that the optimal place is a balance between the two. So a completely private world, I don't think is a good one. And it's not one you want because that allows all bad actors to kind of get away with doing anything and being able to money laundering proceeds from gun running, terrorist financing, child pornography. These aren't kind of minor crimes. This isn't just selling some weed on the side. These are like really bad people doing some really bad things. And if there's complete privacy, they can get away with it. And that's not the world we want to be in. But of course, on the other end, with Bitcoin, everything is completely public. Everything is transparent and recorded forever. So there is kind of a risk there that you as an individual, your complete financial history could be laid bare. And that isn't a world we want to live in either. Like everyone has a right to privacy and particularly on, on how they spend their money. So you need a balance there. So what's kind of interesting is I don't think it's, it's either or. That's the point I want to make. So with the kind of zero knowledge proofs, I think they're absolutely fascinating technology. I think there's some, going to be some really cool things coming out and enable some really useful, it solves some really gnarly problems, as you were saying. Now, as it happens, so we actually uh, very shortly will be launching support for Zcash in our products. So for those of you who don't know, um, that's kind of a fork of Bitcoin that does have zero knowledge proofs on it. And we'll be kind of explaining exactly how we do it. But the most interesting thing about that is noticing that despite Zcash being this privacy coin, that everyone has this incredibly credible encryption, the vast majority of activity on Zcash is transparent. So people choose not to use the encryption. And even those who do use the encryption, it's quite easy because most of them do kind of very simple transaction patterns. So it's like, oh, I get $1,000 worth, I send it into the shielded pool. And five minutes later, I take out $1,000 worth. Well, if you just analyze and look for matching the size of the transactions going in and out, it's actually quite easy to match up people. So I think what's clear from this, and also, I mean, we see it with the fact that Bitcoin is still the most popular way to medium of exchange or .NET markets, is that most people still are willing to come with the balance of privacy, meeting convenience and security. So it's kind of people focus on, can you break the zero knowledge proof? But I think it's far more interesting to discuss like how people use them and whether people actually want to use them for everything. And what I suspect is we'll find a balance point where you as an individual can have privacy and whether that's through zero knowledge proofs or another thing, I'm not sure, but we'll have that. But there'll also be analysis and there will be some transparency and we'll meet a trade-off where we find a balance between the two. I like that. That's an interesting view on how things will kind of play out. <laughs> Something interesting I picked up from what you just said there is that particularly with Zcash, right? <laughs> I mean, it has this amazing encryption that it has in the currency itself, but well, I guess most folks who use it choose to use it in a very transparent way. But then also the folks who tend to use the encryption have very, I guess, predictable behaviors, which is <laughs> very interesting. And I guess something that you guys can do that, that kind of meta-analysis on, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's also an aspect where if we have a world where maybe what's on the blockchain isn't completely public, 
the players involved will need some kind of transparency. We could talk about this more, but there's kind of this idea of, you know, crypto is trustless. But at the end of the day, yeah, it's trustless in that, you know, I can send you money and we can make sure that that money actually gets sent. But there is still like, if people are trading and interacting, they still need trust with each other, even if it's not about whether the money turns up or not. Like at the end of the day, I need trust that you're not going to spend that money buying some really shady, horrible stuff. Like that trust doesn't go away. So even in a completely encrypted online, even if the blockchain is completely encrypted, I think there's no way that the exchanges or the players can't have some kind of transparency or, or way to understand who they're interacting with and, and what they're doing and um, deal with that. Yeah, I definitely agree that there's different layers of trust and just kind of thinking about how to navigate those is a very important one. So I guess let's dive deeper into products, right? So you, at the very top of the conversation, uh, you mentioned Reactor, KYT, cryptos, and the product you guys are going to launch pretty soon, which is called Markets, which does financial analysis and all this data. So you did a pretty good job of kind of outlining all of those products and how they kind of intertwine. I think an interesting conversation here, and this is kind of one we've had off mic, which is some of the challenges you guys are facing around actually building those products, right? So Chainalysis is the largest and has the deepest experience when it comes to what you guys do, which is blockchain analysis for compliance and investigation. And so I'd love to kind of dive a bit deeper into what are some of the main challenges you're facing? I guess let's start off with Reactor and then kind of talk about other products going forward. Cool. Yeah. So actually, when I joined Chainalysis, the first thing I did was actually working on, on Reactor. Awesome. Which is a very interesting the most interesting from a kind of product point of view, kind of the challenge Reactor faces, it's doing these investigations is complex. Mm. And this isn't kind of a, a simple trading app or, or a simple tool or something that you can just pick up. We like to think of it as a bit like Photoshop or kind of Logic Pro, any of those kind of high-end products used by creatives to make incredible things. And so you can't just pick up the product and use it. You need to have training. You need to understand what you're doing, particularly because mm -hmm. there's a lot of kind of armchair blockchain analysis where simple mistakes that are entirely intuitive can lead you to very wrong conclusions. And we see these kind of articles where someone's used a block explorer and, and concluded that, you know, a million dollars of crypto has been sent to ISIS. <laughs> and what they haven't realized is it, it hasn't been sent to ISIS. It's just been sent to an exchange that they've missed, haven't followed the funds correctly. Anyway, so um, <laughs> so yes, yeah, so what it means is we kind of have this funny, interesting state where most of our users are very smart, very capable, very informed, but they're also doing something very complicated. And so we kind of need to make the analysis as easy as possible while also enabling them to do some quite complicated stuff. And that's a kind of a constant trade-off in doing that and giving them the information in a correct way when there's always a lot of nuance tied into it. And of course, one of the other things we have a problem facing that is how do we measure that a customer has actually got value out of it? So, you know, on Netflix, the more time you spend watching something on Netflix, the more value you've got out of it, probably the more money you're going to spend, right? With our product, particularly Reactor, if you spend four hours in it, it may be that you've done an incredible investigation and found out loads of things. Or it could have been that you spent four hours just to find out one piece of information and we did a really bad job of explaining it to you or showing you it. So. Likewise, you could spend five minutes and find exactly what you need super quick. And we've done our job really, really well. So there's a whole bunch of things like that, where it's actually really hard to understand what our customers are using. And in some circumstances, something's good, but in other circumstances, bad. So one of the ways we kind of tackle that is we've had to like break down the whole workflow of React into these small individual little parts. So when you think about 
Amazon, right? Amazon, you go on, you're searching for a product. Once you find a product, you're then comparing a product, then you make a decision and then you buy, then you choose delivery. And there's kind of like stages in the workflow and they, they follow very linearly. Now, in our cases, there are stages in a workflow. It might be search, I've got an address and I want to find out who it is. So you're, you're kind of searching. Well, then once you've found it, you want to follow the trail. Where did the funds come from? Who did they go to? And you can follow that. But the problem is when you find some information, you might go back to search again. And so it kind of isn't linear. It, the users jump around and do different things at different points. So we, we're kind of trying to spot those individual bits of workflow and then measure them and, and understand whether someone has achieved what they want to do too quickly. That's fascinating. I guess you're totally right there where you make the comparison between Amazon when you compartmentalize the different flows of the journey in, the, in your product and kind of trying to optimize each of those to make sure that those particular bits work really well in terms of serving the larger goal of that particular user. So what are some interesting things you found by kind of compartmentalizing the way you analyze these different kind of bits of a journey? Yeah, so as an example, there was like, it sounds like the most simple thing, but we've added sorting in terms of transactions and transfers and filters. And so we actually had this cool graph that you could actually drag and highlight the parts of the history of the transactions that you want to look at. But what we realized was that you had to get your mouse just right to get what you want. And it, it wasn't the easiest to use. <laughs> and actually, simple Excel filters, drop downs, although they seem a bit clunky, for most of our users were just simpler and easier. And so we'd kind of built this quite shiny thing, which solved the problem better if you were us. But for our users, <laughs> they actually needed something simpler and clunkier, but actually was more accurate and kind of, it turned out actually that was, that was quicker to use and solved their problem better than our, our kind of more singing or dancing solution. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah I guess <laughs> you kind of have to build your product around your users' existing mental models. And so I guess their existing mental model revolving around spreadsheets and drop downs and stuff like that. And, you know, they even got used to that. And that's, that kind of works really well for them. But obviously, the amazing new shiny, I guess, way you guys were thinking about it worked great for you guys. But then I guess it didn't work as good as or was a little bit harder for the users to use. Yeah. And then just generally, this mm. is a problem we constantly face. And whenever you're working in something quite complex is that you have to balance teaching the user to like do the best practice or use the right frames or the right mental models versus like just building on what they already understand and, and making life easy for them. And there's always a trade-off there. Yeah. Where do you think the line sits when it comes to that? I think it depends what product you're building. So if you are kind of a, a B2C or you're kind of mass market, you basically, there's no point. You will just waste a lot of energy and sometimes it's just simpler to work with what they've got. Now, in our case, there's certain things where we basically, if it doesn't really matter, if it gets like, well, technically, yes, then we just go with what's simpler and what the users understand. But where it could cause the simplification actually causes more problems than it solves. And that, that's what you're spotting for. So, you know, one of the ones we face is people often think about wallets and wallets don't map to addresses on one-to-one. -one. It gets quite complicated and people misuse the words. So we're always very careful about exactly what words we use when we're talking about wallets or addresses or clusters and all this term. So that's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah, you're totally right that it depends on what type of product you're building. It's the context, right? It, when you guys are building something like chain analysis, where perhaps it's slightly more high touch than it is for just a regular B2C kind of product where you have millions of users using the product, there is that kind of like fine line of where do you teach the user something new and kind of adds a little bit of friction in terms, or not friction, but like learning curve, but then ultimately gets them to 
using the product more efficiently, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's an interesting conversation. I guess that ties into something else I'd kind of want to dive deeper into, which is that for chain analysis, processing data, I can only imagine is a huge, huge thing, right? It's a big, big thing when it comes to building out your proposition. And so I guess the number of users that you guys have, it's like B2B, it's kind of high touch, it's, you know, the customers are high value. So when it comes to scaling on that front, it's less of a burden. But when you guys have new chains that you're adding, for example, Zcash is the one you're going to about to implement and kind of offer to your customers. I imagine that every time you add a new chain, there's an interesting challenge there where you have to understand the complexities of each chain. And that obviously comes with a high engineering cost. But then also what's interesting, and I guess what is unique to chain analysis is that with every chain, the data set is not stagnant. Like one, you need to understand all the historical data. So from inception to where it is right now, but then assuming that these chains continue to get used at the scale that they use and that grows over time, then you need to continually update your data sets, right? To be able to offer a great product. And <laughs> the funny thing is, is that's just table stakes. That's not even where the magic happens. Like, that's just table stakes. So I'd love to kind of dive deeper into how you guys are potentially overcoming this challenge and kind of navigating this, because I know it's a fascinating, gnarly problem to work on. Yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So yeah, just collecting the data, yeah, it's worth saying is not an easy thing. Like a lot of these XRP is what, how many terabytes now? Like, <laughs> and then, you know, a classic problem we face, we want to add a new coin, we spin up the node, we start collecting that data, syncing up that node can take months. So you have to like, almost wow. plan ahead to collect that. And then, you know, if one of those nodes goes down, or, you know, a database gets corrupted, whatever, you have a risk there that, hey, if we lose this data, it's going to take us months to get it back. You kind of need to make sure you're collecting that. And as you say, like collecting it at block speed. So high throughput chains is an interesting problem we're facing where actually we need to not just collect the data as the speed of the blocks are delivered, but we need to analyze them at speed as well. And so, uh, yeah, it's exactly like a kind of river flowing through and you're needing to kind of filter things out as it goes. So yes, one of the, the interesting things here is that we talk about breadth and depth. So we can add more data source. So that might be, yeah, adding a new chain, adding a new coin, like we're collecting new data, you know, real world data. So one of the problems, you know, we're facing at the moment is we would like to tell our customers for each crypto business, what is, what country do they operate from? Are they legally based? Simple thing, right? Mm. Well, if we have 2000 entities keeping track of the countries with 2000, now, Normal world, that's relatively easy. But in the crypto world, people change their legal entities and the countries relatively more often than most companies. So just keeping track of that data is like an extra burden. So as soon as you add like every extra bit of information, if you want to keep up date for everything and keep the data quality, it adds more work that needs doing. But yeah, and the next thing is the magic, as we say, is, is depth. Like we're not just pulling all this data together and showing it to you. We're doing analysis on top. And as the data set is like a constantly growing one, our analysis isn't just the current slice. So if you're an exchange, you need to like know the price right now. You need to know the order book, whatever. Now for us, we're looking, all the historic data affects the current data as well, right? So if a scam traded a year ago, their funds are still filtering through today. Like you might be getting money that's exchanged through three or four hands, but came from were stolen funds originally or a scam. So we need to be able to spot that. So we need to, as the data goes, it doesn't just grow linearly, it grows kind of exponentially. And so uh, we have a lot of problems of data scaling and data infrastructure. And we're, we're actually spending a lot of time at the moment just scaling our data infrastructure. And so uh, it can kind of create this classic kind of product problem of for the customer, 
they're not necessarily seeing new features. They're not necessarily enjoying, you know, all this extra stuff. But just for us, like, to be able to just deliver that much more data, it's not a little bit more work. It's it's a whole bunch more work to make sure that our pipeline can actually manage that. Yeah, it's table stakes. And you guys have been doing this for a while. And so I'm sure you've kind of built up a, a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of experience around this. And so... And a wealth of tech debt. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, this is the like classic problems banks have, right? You know, they have these big mm. tech infrastructure and they can't stop serving, right? You can't stop for a while. But we've got exactly the same problem. And, you know, if you're uh, if you're just delivering a product or delivering something at the end point, it's much easier to build a parallel pipeline. For us, we're like just the sheer amount of data. Like if we were to build another pipeline and, you know, a brand new pipeline, our cloud computing bill would be colossal. Like it would double like our costs. <laughs> so because, uh, you know, most of our company's costs other than employing people is, is just basically paying for, for computing power. Yeah, because I guess it, yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I can only imagine what it's like to build this kind of a product. But I, I think it's awesome. I think it's interesting because it shows itself in like new interesting product challenges. And I guess it's interesting to discuss these and kind of walk through some of these problems. I could honestly keep going down the list. I kind of want to dive a bit deeper into some of the data scaling kind of issues you're having and kind of how you guys are sure. navigating that. But I realized that we'd have an infinite amount of time. And <laughs> honestly, if we did keep going deeper, because I think I honestly, I really appreciate these conversations. And obviously we've had one off camera, off mic, sorry where we've kind of gone deep in terms of um, how you guys are approaching product. And it's super interesting. And, and you guys have a lot of unique challenges and you're solving them in very interesting ways. But I guess for the sake of time, and again, at the end of this podcast, we'll, we'll talk about this later, but I would love to kind of have you on again and we can dive a bit deeper into some of these challenges because I think they're interesting. But just to kind of wrap up, while building code reg and chain analysis and all of the stuff you've done in terms of products in your career, whether it be crypto or non-crypto related, What's one really interesting piece of advice you'd give to other product founders or product teams in terms of building successful product? I know this is kind of general, so you can take it wherever you want to take it, but what are your thoughts around this? Yeah, yeah. so I th think one of the main things I learned was you want to get as much advice you can get. There's this kind of idea mm. of, it's really useful to, and I, it's kind of, of the total knowledge on this subject, what percentage of it do you have? Mm, interesting. Talk to us about that. Okay, cool. So if it comes to, I don't know, crypto as a subject, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm pretty knowledgeable, but I wouldn't, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not Vitalik, right? So mm. my opinion on the crypto would be better than the average person. But for the most part, if an expert tells me something, I should probably follow their advice more than my own. Mm -hmm. Now, the first thing to note is there's, probably more than one expert with more than one opinion and the opinions contradict. So you can't just blindly follow one advice, but you know, listen to multiple experts and you have to make your best decision. Mm -hmm. But basically follow the established advice. Like the crowd probably knows more than you. Mm -hmm. When it comes to a subject where you actually have a very high percentage of knowledge. So for example, blockchain analysis. Mm. I myself, you know, a pretty high percentage of the world knowledge of blockchain analysis, I've got it. And there are people in my team that are literally the world experts and I, you know, work them with every day. So mm. if we look at the consensus or the normal way of following things, actually, we're more likely to, if we think differently, we're more likely to be right than the consensus is. Mm. And so you don't want to spend all your time on things where there is a consensus and you don't know better than the consensus. But on the areas where you do, you really should think about them. So kind of give you a few cases. Lots of product advice is for building low touch B2C products. Mm. So you know, if you read Lean Startup or any of these kind of things, really useful thinking, really useful thing, but actually they 
don't apply to the situation you're in. And so recognizing when things do apply and when things don't apply is very, very valuable. And also recognizing that at the end of the day, there's more than one expert educated opinion and they will not be the same. And so you kind of at the end of the day have to kind of make a decision. So uh, yeah, it's work out how to pass advice is, is one of the most useful things that you can do. I really, really like that. And that's something that I've noticed as well. Perhaps haven't gone into too much detail as, as much as you have in terms of thinking about this particular kind of thought, but that's interesting. You're totally right there where you must obviously take advice, but you have to know how to weigh certain piece of advice. And I guess that cuts through into also stuff you do around product around. There's a bunch of feature suggestions that people make and ideas that come up. And again, you need to filter through what makes the most amount of sense, right? Yeah. And so, so a classic case was, we thought we'd do something slightly cleverer about transfers and sorting a table. And it's like, no, we should have just gone with Excel, like tried and trusted, simple <laughs> method. We tried to do something fancy. We probably didn't know the best thing there. But when it comes to, for example, user metrics, we shouldn't follow what Google does mm. because they have a million daily active users for even their smallest thing. And so they have all this data that they can look at. Whereas for us, we need to use far more judgment. We need to talk to our users a lot more and we can't just follow a simple metrics. We are informed by metrics, but we can't be driven by metrics. So it's kind of our approach is different from Google in this case. Not that we know more than Google, but for our area, we do. <laughs> of course. And this brings another fascinating conversation, which is that product is one of the rare, I guess, disciplines where it's very subjective. Like I can't go and say this person is like the world's best product manager because the world's best product manager looks very different for, let's say, for example, Google or Chainalysis or Salesforce or whatever, right? It's, it's very contextual. But I guess there are some kind of fundamental things that cut through every single product manager. And so I guess the journey of a product manager is basically to find out what those things are and kind of to optimize for those. And I guess in your opinion, just as, as a final wrap up, what do you think those things are? Those core fundamental things that cut through every single product manager that make them the best? Well, in this case, I won't claim anything different other than what some of the product experts think about this a lot more than me do, which is mm. execution. Like mm. this is an important thing. At the end of the day, if you don't deliver, everything else is irrelevant. So make sure you deliver and kind of, you have to be scrappy to do it, be scrappy to do it. Let's just make sure you deliver. There's no point building something beautiful that doesn't get delivered. At the end of the day, you should be laser focused on what your users need and what helps them. And that should inform everything that you do. And if it's not, then you're wasting your time. So again, your users are your experts. Pay attention to their opinion and their advice is more important than often your own. Yeah. And then um, no, making those judgment calls and it's judgment and it's wisdom. And that is often hard earned and takes a long time to realize how to apply rules in context and getting good at that. I love that. I love that. So using the advice that you gave, which is to learn how to pass advice as to give weight to certain advice, you just use that there to give weight to the advice of all the product experts out there and kind of give that advice. <laughs> I love that kind of how meta that got. <laughs> I do try and eat my own dog food. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, that's a fantastic way to end the podcast, my friend. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, learned a tremendous amount. No, thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, of course. And learned a tremendous amount about Chainalysis and some of the thoughts you have around product. Yeah, thank you so much for coming and I hope to have you on soon. Yeah, I look forward to chatting soon and take care.